Um, so I'm going to read, do the Bible reading today from um, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. And you can follow along in the booklets on page 5. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, hello, my name's Anthea, if you don't know me. I've been here since day one of Merry Creek and uh, since December 2013. Um, and... Uh, we've been going through this series in John for quite a while, um, this time last year, and then we've been picking it up in the last uh, two sermons with Beck and with Flick, and so we're continuing on with this passage here today, um, a very familiar passage to most of us, I'm sure. Uh, but this passage really, uh, when I was thinking about it, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, it made me uh, think immediately of something. I don't, I don't know if any of you are cooks. Uh, do any of you know of Ottolenghi? So Ottolenghi, okay. So, so he's, uh, he's got about four or five books in our, our, book, our cookbook shelf. But uh, this one here is called Plenty. Don't you love that name? They just love that name. Plenty. Plenty. And, and do you know what his next one was? Or not? Actually, I don't know if it was his next one. It's Plenty more, plenty more, plenty and plenty more. And um, anyway, do you know what I really like about these books? The pictures. I love the pictures. The pictures um, that just show these meals of abundance. 
or what ways you can do things with beans and grains and all sorts of things. I mean, he can even turn Brussels sprouts into a gourmet meal. And I know that because I tried. I had these leftover Brussels sprouts that my dear neighbour, um, Jo, had given to me before she left on holidays to Tasmania. And I thought, what am I going to do with these Brussels sprouts? And anyway, so he had a recipe Hear this, Brussels sprouts and tofu. Yeah. yeah, weird. But it was really good. And he says, um, Ottolenghi, in the beginning of um, the book Plenty, he says, we've never lived at a time when we've had so much. So much food, so much choice. So much, many ways to be satisfied with good food. Certainly in our affluent Western civilization. And that goes for other benefits as well. We've never lived at a time where we've had so much freedom, so much choice of where to live or be educated or employment or the chance to travel and the ease of travel. So many benefits of communication, so many options for health care and having our health needs met, our relational needs met, our entertainment needs met. And it's so easy in a consumer society like ours to have the attitude that If one thing doesn't give us what we want, then we quickly move on to something else that we think can. And the danger is, if we think about it, is that we can do the same with Jesus. We can bring our agenda into church or even impose our needs on Jesus or attach ourselves to church, or attach ourselves to Jesus um, because of what we think we can get out of it. There's all sorts of reasons for coming to church, for attaching ourselves to Jesus. Perhaps we want friends, we're lonely, and we think, yeah, these people are nice. I'll get friends there. Or perhaps uh, people will go to church because they think it's a good thing to do to be involved in the local community. Or perhaps uh, it's for the kids. We want the kids to have some sort of moral upbringing, some values, good values. Or perhaps it's because of tradition. It's what a family, our parents have always done, and so we do that. Or even because we want to identify with a particular ethnic group, so we go to that ethnic church. And in a way, there's nothing wrong with those reasons, but they're in and of themselves inadequate. There can, of course, be wicked reasons for attaching yourself to Jesus, for coming along to church, uh, because we want to bully, because we want to have power, or because we want to dominate others. And unfortunately, we've seen that happen so much, and we know the Royal Commission has brought that out. But what is your agenda? What is your agenda? The situation, that situation, is not new. In fact, in John 6, we see this happening. Do you see that there are huge crowds coming to Jesus? Jesus has drawn to himself 
the, the biggest kind of roving mega church that you've ever seen. And it says in this passage uh, down the end when he ends up feeding that there are 5,000 men, and it does specify men. So we can um, assume that it, because there's a boy there as well, that there were children and women there as well. So there were families. So it could be well up to fifteen to um, 20,000 people. And they're running after Jesus. What is their agenda? What is Jesus' agenda? Well, let's take a look at it this week, and it also goes on next week. So Pete's going to talk about the next part of this passage next week. But in verse 2, we see that, they are the, that Jesus and his disciples are back from Jerusalem. They're now back in Galilee. And he goes from Capernaum, we see, uh, over the other side, across the other side of the lake, Lake Galilee, Lake Tiberias. And it says a huge crowd kept following him. Why does it say that? Because of the signs that he had been doing. Now, we saw last week from what um, Flick said to us in terms of testimony, signs are one reason, Jesus says, to believe in him, believe in him because of the amazing things that he is doing. But the question is, what will these people do with the signs and the information that they get from the sign about Jesus? So Jesus, uh, they're, they're running after him. Uh, he goes up then on a mountain with his 12 closest disciples. Uh, but he can't escape. They run after him up the hill. It's a bit like that, um, if you've seen the life of Brian scene, you know, where they're just chasing him around up the hill and he's trying to get away. Anyway, you might not be a Life of Brian fan. I always think that's quite amusing. But he looks up. He looks up and he can see this crowd, this great harvest who are just coming at him. But he puts in force his own agenda. Verse 5, to Philip, he initiates uh, this question. Uh, and it's, it's a test. Let's read it. Uh, when Jesus looked up and saw a crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And it says it was a test for he had in mind what he was about to do. So Jesus has his agenda. It's all mapped out. He's not stumped by all these people and the fact that they might have not have something to eat. But Philip is totally confused. How is this going to happen? And he answered him, it will take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. You know, just a little, little tiny bite. It's never going to actually satisfy them, even if we had more than half a year's wages. It just says, it's just impossible. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon uh, Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? 
I mean, it's, it's kind of almost ludicrous, isn't it, what he says? Uh, well, here we got uh, five kind of little, little tiny barley loaves, which are kind of the size of a scone, like a present-day scone. And we've got two sort of fish, maybe sardines, so it's kind of like his packed lunch. And it's a bit sort of, why would you bother even attempting? Uh, so it's like trying to kind of pay for a house by emptying out your kid's piggy bank onto the kitchen table and you know that's just kind of loose change Uh, what's that going to do it's impossible but Jesus has a plan he's going to do something big something big that's going to point these people to himself and so we see there he says have them sit down on the grass I love the fact that it points that out. Plentiful grass. It's got that sense of eyewitness account, doesn't it? 5,000 men, so probably upward of 20,000 people if we include the families. And then Jesus took the barley loaves, gave thanks and distributed it to those who were seated. See what it says there? As much as they wanted And he did the same with the fish, distributed as much as they wanted. And it says that they had all more than enough to eat. They were absolutely full. Oh, please no more as they burp. No more, I'm done. They were satisfied. And then when they had all, it says here, repeats it again, when they had all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather up the pieces that are left over, that word in the Greek is that are bound, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of leftovers, again this word abounding, of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I love leftovers. I particularly love Ottolenghi leftovers, or maybe not so much the Brussels sprouts and the tofu, even though that was good. Don't you love leftovers? I love a great meal, and then with leftovers to take home in your little doggy bag. Well, here's five scones and two fish that have produced enough for all of these people, plus 12 baskets full of leftover pieces of fish and bread. Well, not to think of small little tiny baskets. We're to think of Middle Eastern baskets that you stick on the back of your bag, like a big backpack, you know, those big long cane things, full of them. Let nothing be wasted. We're meant to see the abundance of what was eaten and also what was left over. It's an amazing miracle of plenty and plenty more. Such a weighty sign, a weighty sign. This feeding of the 5,000 is in all four of the Gospels. It's the only miracle that is accounted in all four of the Gospels. So this is significant significant for the gospel writers, significant for the Christians, and uh, inspired by God, 
significant for us. How should we respond? Well, an atheistic response, and maybe there are one or two of us here today, an atheist, you think, well, this story just does not fit into my agenda. It doesn't fit into my atheistic agenda. The fact that God could do this or that Jesus was a human being that could do these things, it just does not fit into my worldview, into my universe. And so it's rejected outright as impossible. If Jesus existed at all, it's a myth. It's it's make-believe. But what about Jesus' agenda? What about John's agenda? What does he think that we should be getting out of this story? Remember that it's a sign, and John talks about signs. And he carefully selects his signs in order to communicate something about Jesus. Why? As we see at the end of John's Gospel, to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in all its fullness. So this sign is meant to point to something. There's a deeper, more significant side to this feeding miracle than just feeding people's hungry tummies. Jesus wants to show them something about himself, that he is greater than all the Old Testament promises about him, greater than Moses, who we saw last week. The scriptures pointed towards Jesus, Moses' scriptures, and so forth. And Jesus is someone greater than Moses who wants to rescue his people from eternal perishing. And the clues about that are in this passage. Take a look at verse 4. There's this random verse that really puzzled me when I was preparing this. See what it says in verse 4? It just sort of notes in the setting there that the Passover was near. You know, festivals are really important for John. Often what he does is it's made note that it's around the time of the festivals and in chapter 7 we'll read that what he does uh, is around this festival, the tabernacles. Here it mentions that the Passover was near and The Passover is very important um, to the people at the time. And you remember back to uh, Exodus, if you know the story of Exodus, that we find in Exodus uh, that, that the people of Israel are in captivity, under oppression, in slavery, in Egypt, under Pharaoh. And uh, the Lord God brings his people out of that oppression and into the wilderness. And he does that uh, through, through the sacrificed lamb and they daub the, the lamb, the blood of the lamb on their, their doorposts. And uh, through the agency of Moses, uh, they are brought through the Red Sea and brought and delivered into uh, a wilderness uh, on their way to the promised land. And while they're in the wilderness, uh, God continues to provide for them. He provides for them through manna 
uh, from heaven that comes down to, to feed them and, uh, and they, can, they can gather up the pieces on the Sabbath and keep it for the Sabbath. He feeds them with quail and he feeds and he, and he, he quenches their thirst uh, with, with the, the water that comes out from the rock. So he is a, a providing them abundantly in the wilderness through the agency of Moses. And so while our minds might not uh, hear in this story of the feeding of the 5,000, this background, the people of the time definitely would. It would have been in the forefront of their mind as they saw Jesus doing these things, uh, feeding uh, of abundance at the Passover, the time of the Passover. So uh, we too are meant to see the parallels between the um, Old Testament Moses and Jesus. Uh, So if we would seek that deeper meaning of who Jesus is. And they begin to see that. Do you see in verse 14? After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So the prophet that uh, they're talking about there is the one that was expected in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 18, out of the mouth of the prophet Moses, he says that God will provide another prophet, an even greater prophet, who will look after the people, deliver them, feed them. And at the end of Deuteronomy, the writer records, there has not been yet one, another one like Moses, but he is coming. That's their expectation. So this expectation, surely this is the prophet who is coming into the world, is a very strong statement. It's almost like saying he's the Messiah. And in, in some sense, they seem to put that together as well. Uh, with the next verse. Can you see that in verse uh, 15? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king, that is, the Christ, the Messiah, by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So these people are not wrong in identifying, proclaiming him as Messiah, even as king. We see already from chapter 1, verse 49, Nathanael says to, about Jesus, you are the king of Israel. He already is known as the king in John's gospel. But he's more than Moses. And he's more than the sort of king that they're looking for. A king who, I guess, it means from this, wanting to take him by force, means that they want to put him up to free them from the Roman oppression. They want the signs, but they want political and physical rescue. They're so hung up on their preconceptions about who Jesus should be, about the prophet should be, the king should be. They've made him into a freedom fighter. They, they want him to rescue them um, from poverty, 
But Jesus hasn't essentially come to rescue them from poverty or illness or to be a freedom fighter. Even though Jesus does care about unjust regimes and he does care about people hungry and he does care about our physical ailments. If we do that about Jesus, we sell him far too short. We undervalue him. And we don't give him the glory that the scriptures give to him. Because he has come to bring far more a complete and lasting rescue. So Jesus will not be king by kidnap. He won't be king by any other way than via the cross. And so he escapes. And later on, you have probably you haven't got this uh, because it's not in your Bible. But if you have a Bible there, you can turn to verse twenty-six, and Pete might uh, point this out next week. Jesus actually has a go at them later on because he sees through their reasons for seeking him. And he says this, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs that I performed, but because you ate of the loaves and you had your fill. One commentator puts it this way, Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. Get it? Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they see in the sign only the bread. That is, they see only this worldly, earthly benefit for them. But Jesus is here to rescue them spiritually with eternal benefit. Later on in the passage next week, we'll see that he says these amazing words. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So do they just follow here, Jesus, for what they can get out of him from the here and now? And I want to finish uh, this uh, time of reflection by thinking about two things. One, that this passage actually is a rebuke for us. And that is we can follow Jesus for what we can get out of him from the here and now. We can at times be preoccupied about our material needs, uh, power or prosperity or health. We can even force our own agenda on Jesus, shaping our own longings and desires and priorities, conforming our prayers to our present needs rather than God's agenda. We can sometimes want to limit Jesus, limit to him being uh, a teacher, but no more. A great leader, but not our heavenly king. A carer of the poor and social justice, but no, I'm not going to come to him to repentance for my spiritual needs to be met. 
or we can see um, him as the great example of forgiveness or a great example of compassion. Who can, someone who can do even powerful things, but he's not the Lord of Lords of my life. And we can want to control Jesus, hold tight to our own expectations of what he should be like or what God should think or what he should say. You know, it's very hard to live your human relationships like that. You know, think about a marriage. If you go into a marriage wanting to control the other, wanting to manipulate them into the sort of person that you want them to be. That's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? It's a recipe for unhappiness for both you and the one that you're married to. Now, a real relationship means that you don't go into that relationship wanting to control them and make them into your idea You must accept them for who they are. And the the awful thing about this miracle is, as astounding and astonishing it is, is that most who saw the miracle ended up leaving Jesus. We see that at the end of the chapter as we come next week. And that's a scary thing. If we actually attach ourselves to Jesus to come to church for our own agenda... In the end, you will leave. It won't last. So let's think about our expectations of Jesus. Will we allow Jesus to be the prophet and the king, the Messiah, that he wants to be for us? The second thing that I want us to reflect on is this theme of plenty. You can't escape it from the passage. I want us to think about the nature of the kingdom of God. For there are some who do see this miracle and they end up believing in Jesus, not just because of the miracles, but because of what the miracles show about Jesus and his kingdom. And they end up following him for the rest of their lives. So if we allow this sign to be for us, um, what it truly is showing about Jesus and his kingdom, what sort of a kingdom and what sort of a Jesus do we follow? This is a Jesus who really... (laughs) is abundant in his love for us. The nature of the kingdom of God that he brings. He says, come to me. And he says, you will have eternal life. Eternal life that starts not just now, but that will be consummated in full when we are with him in the heavenly banquet. He promises to feed us to feed us spiritually, to have our spiritual needs met. He is enough. He promises to forgive us all our sins abundantly. He promises to love us abundantly. He promises to satisfy us, see, as much as they wanted, with 
leftovers. Sometimes we think Jesus and his kingdom is so stingy. It's not going to meet my needs. It's not going to be enough if I follow Jesus, if I obey him. It's not going to be enough. It's not going to meet my physical, spiritual needs. Am I really going to be forgiven? Is Jesus' forgiveness abundant enough to be able to meet the needs of my own sins and weaknesses? Is his love knowing no bounds? This passage says, like the disciples doubted, oh, it's not going to be enough. What, what, what are we going to do? How far is this going to... Let's cast our eyes above to see the God who can pour out his abundant forgiveness, spiritual life, abundantly to meet our every need and more. What would it look like to live as an individual Christian with this Jesus of plenty? Your Jesus of plenty. What would it be to face death knowing this Jesus of plenty that even though your life is wasting away, that you're going to be in the heavenly banquet with him forever? with our brothers and sisters in Christ? What would it look like to be Mary Creek who follow this Jesus of plenty, who offer the gospel of plenty, the good news of plenty, of spiritual life abundantly to others? It might not look like having a beautiful life, a well-appointed home, lots of Ottolenghi books on our bookshelf and abundance of all sorts of things like health and physical things. But it will be the life that God promises and that he provides, which he promises that will overflow to eternity. So to close, I just wanted us to maybe even close our eyes and I want us to imagine that we were there that day. We were there in the crowd that day maybe as one of the 12, maybe as one of the people who are racing around, racing around trying to meet Jesus, see more of Jesus, find out more of Jesus. And he gets you to sit down on the grass, the plentiful, lush grass. And then you see him do the things that he does. He feeds you. And you think back to those words of Deuteronomy, the promises, that this is the one to come, the promised one. Reflect on what you see, what you hear. Reflect next week on what Jesus says about himself being the bread of life. And ask yourself, what does Jesus mean to you? Will he be who he says he is not a, ma imagine, a figment of your imagination or what you want him to be. Will he be your Jesus of plenty? Amen.